blast. Uh, it was a great time out there at Yanny. I'm glad that uh, many of you guys were able to be with us and to show up. Uh, it was just, it was a good time out there. So again, my name is Jeff. I'm one of the pastors on staff. And uh, man, I'm glad to be here today. I know it's raining outside, but uh, right, everyone's excited about that. At least it wasn't raining last week. So um, I love it when that kind of a plan comes together. Does that statement, I love it when a plan comes together, does that ring any bells for some of you? Uh, does that remind you of anything? I love it when a plan comes together. Does that remind you of Hannibal on the A-team? Remember that? Remember Hannibal on the A-team? I mean, check that guy out. I mean, come on. That was, that was the guy that, you know, all teenagers aspired to be like. Uh, we wanted to be Hannibal, the leader of the A-team. And the A-team went out and they accomplished all these missions and, you know, guns were fired and things blew up. But one thing about the A-team is no, you never saw anybody die. That was a kind of an interesting show. So, but he loved it when a plan came together. That was like the closing statement of all of the lines. I love it when a plan comes together. And last week, a great plan came together. On July 7th, we met out at Yanny Park. Uh, wow, there were so many details that had to go into that. To take your church and go remote with it is a big detail. We had a lot of people that were helping us to lead those things. You know, from Jerry on our worship, uh, to my wife dealing with things with the picnic, to Pastor Eric dealing with things in the children's area, to uh, the Tay family who helped me go to Goodwill and get a bunch of clothes for people of all different sizes um, so that people could get baptized and then spontaneously, well, very, uh, maybe I should use the word biblically, uh, be able to respond and say, I want to give my life to Christ today and I want the world to know it and be baptized right there on the spot. And we even set up a little uh, shade changing tent that they could get into. There were so many details that went into that day. Uh, I was just impressed with all the volunteers that gave of their time, energy and effort to make that day happen. I wanted to say thank you to every single one of you that, that uh, either served before it or came early to make it happen. I know our sound guys, we hired them, but nevertheless, they were there about 4.30 in the morning getting everything set up for our one worship service at 10 o'clock. There's a lot of man hours that go into making a plan come together. All right, are you with me? But I love it when a plan comes together. And that was one of those days. You know, God has a plan. I know we hear this kind of thing often, that God has a plan. We all know that. God is a planner if you didn't know it. Some people think that God's just spontaneous and he's just responding to things that are happening. I'm telling you today, God very much is a planner. Go look at the first few chapters of Genesis and you'll see that God is a planner. I'm glad that God, when he created the world and he created the universe, he did it in a very planned, systematic way. I, I'm glad that when God decided to put humans on the earth, that the sun was already shining, as an example. I'm glad that when God decided to put humans on the earth, that he already created the atmosphere. And uh, oxygen, you know, was there for us to breathe. Wouldn't it have been really messed up if that happened backwards? Uh, that would have been a messed up plan. God would have been, oops, learn from that one. Let me go do it again. But God is a planner, and he's planning things for your life and for my life. Okay? God's at work doing that. But what happens when we deviate from God's plan? What happens when we decide we're going to go live life the way we want to, the way we feel is necessary? What happens when we take over, we feel like our plan is best. That leads us away from God, which defines us then as a prodigal. Someone who walks away from the truth that they know. Someone who is out there wandering around in the wilderness of life. Searching for the meaning of life. Searching for fulfillment. Searching for significance. Searching for the fun that they thought they never had. See, God's plan is the best plan. But man, many times in our, you know finite wisdom, we decide we've got a way that's better. So what happens when man drifts away from God's plan? What does that really look like? And he wants to come back. What happens when he wakes up and he goes, I want to be in relationship with God again. What, what happens then? Are we forever destined for eternity without God? Are we out there as a prodigal and we're just, we've lived our lives and we've sinned so much that now we are forever we're forever at a point where we're just going to be separated from God? Is that, is that where we're at? Or, or, does the, or does God, is he willing to give us another chance, but he hits the reset button. He goes, everything that you did have, you've lost. So now you've got to start back at step one again, as if I never knew you. 
and we have to rebuild a relationship and God goes, hello, my name's God. What's your name? As if you never really knew him. Is that where you start when you're a prodigal and you want to come back? Or do we have to, you know, get up in front um, of the entire church and stand on a stage like this and confess all the details of our sins and not leave out one of them to all the church and to God? Is that what God expects when we're as a prodigal and we want to come back? Is he wanting us to know all those details and, you know, get up here and embarrass ourselves completely in front of everyone? Or does God, does God forgive, but yet look us in the eye and tell us, you just need to know something, though. I don't trust you. See, that's the way we would treat one another. I'll forgive you, but just know I don't trust you. Is that the way God responds to us if we're a prodigal and we're wanting to come back and be in relationship with him again? These types of statements are the types of things that an average prodigal thinks. They think that, well, I've sinned so much, I can never come back to God. They think to themselves, well, God will allow me to come back, but I'll start all over, and I don't even know if I want to do that. Or They go to the extremes of their thoughts concerning God, like God would forgive me, but he'll never trust me again, so why would I even want to come back? There's so many detrimental concepts to a prodigal that causes them not to even ever want to come back into relationship with God. Not to mention what they feel like the face of God is as he looks towards them. What do you think? I'm going to ask you a question today. And if you have version, there's a poll. Your very first poll on version today asks you the question, you know, if what do you think the average prodigal envisions God's face is towards them? When God looks at the average prodigal, what do you think the, the average prodigal thinks that God's face is towards them? As an example, do they think that God's face is like this one, mad? Or maybe, maybe they think that God's face looks more like this, more of a hysterical. Now, hysterical can kind of go both ways, all right? It could be like that, <laughs> are you serious? You actually want to try to come back in relationship with me? Are you crazy? Do you know what you've done? Or it could just be, you know what? So anyways, hysterical. Or it could be, it could be happy. And this is, this is Denny, Denny Russell, by the way. I told Denny out in the hallway, this is just his natural face, isn't it? If you're going to have a natural face, that's the face to be known for right there. So is it that God's face is happy towards you? Or could it be lastly that, God has an interrogating face. And that God's just there and he's ready to third degree you. All right? Which of those four faces do you feel like the average prodigal sees when they, when they perceive how God is looking at their life? I want you to vote on version now. And the poll, the, the results of those polls are going to be up on the screens. And if you thought we forgot about greeting, we did not. What I want you to do is take the next few moments together and I want you to get up and greet the people around you. But when you do that, I want you to ask them, which face do you feel best describes the face that the average prodigal sees when they think about God looking at them? And I want you to get up and you discuss that amongst yourselves and then we're going to come right back here and we're going to keep it going. You ready, Salman? Let's make it happen. All right, you can keep voting. All right, we're going to keep rolling, buddy. I'm going to keep rolling. I got to. All right, so here's the deal. These are what you voted. All right, how many of you guys uh, said mad out there? How many of you guys said mad? Even the ones who didn't vote. I mean, you just shared it amongst yourselves. You said mad, okay? How many of you guys think that God's just hysterical towards, uh, towards the prodigal? All right, well, there are at least 9% of you did. So uh, I know that you're out there. It might be half of one of you now. Um, there could be, uh, how about happy? How many guys think that the average prodigal sees their sees God's face happy? And then obviously last, we have the interrogating, right? All right, so I just wanted to make sure that everybody was included. Those of you that don't have version, um, it's okay. Um, you, you know, I'm just going to tell you, if you have a smartphone, you, you definitely want to go that direction. Uh, we're going to be using it more and more. It's a great tool for reading the Bible. It allows you to carry with you a lot of Bibles all the time, no matter where you're at. If you're on a taxi, you're at the airport, you are waiting at a restaurant for your food, you're, no matter where you are, you can access the Bible. That is a great, great tool. These are, I would say that th- this represents the average, uh, the average heart of a person that would consider themselves to be a prodigal. Um, I know that when I was there, I, I did think that God was more mad than he was going to interrogate me, but interrogation was right on the heels of it. So I could, I could easily see the heart of a prodigal thinking to themselves, yes, I think that God's going to forgive me, but he's going to interrogate the snot out of me. Um, 
And one of the reasons for that is because our picture of God the Father has a lot to do with our earthly father. We, we oftentimes put a stigma on God based on how our earthly fathers treated us. My, my dad, um, I love that man, um, he, he knew how to third degree a person. He knew how to, he knew how, he still knows how to ask questions that lead to questions that lead to other questions that get to what he wants. Um, he does a good job with that. You can see the wheels spinning in his head. You know, I also saw my dad though when I did something that was wrong. Whoosh! There was this rage of anger that, you know, presented itself as that's wrong. And he was very stern and very strict and he followed through with his discipline. I saw, I saw my dad as that kind of a man, a very strong father figure, um, loving to us, very loving to us. But he, he portrayed those two things. And when I became a prodigal and walked away from God, when I viewed God as coming back, I saw those. And many times, fathers, if I can just speak to you for a moment, you, you do need to realize that you're establishing the picture of God to your children. You're like, whoa, I don't want that responsibility. Well, then maybe you should never have had kids. But since you do have kids, you do need to realize that is our job. We help or we hinder our kids in how they see God. It's, uh, it's one of the responsibilities that rests on the shoulders of fatherhood. That doesn't mean that you have to be perfect. That's not what it means, because we're all going to make mistakes. But our kids, for whatever reason, are going to view God through that lens. They're going to see God as compassionate. They're going to see God as angry. And for, for today, you know, what is, what is God's true heart, though, towards the prodigal? That's where we're wanting to go today. Luke chapter 15 is where we're going to land over these next three weeks. What is God's true heart? These are the hearts that the average prodigal thinks. You might have a thought of what God's true heart is towards the prodigal, but from a biblical perspective, what is God's true heart towards the prodigal? Luke chapter 15 was written based off of a question and statements that were being made by religious leaders to Jesus. The religious leaders were completely confused and they were completely frustrated with the fact that Jesus, in their own words, hung out with notorious sinners. (laughs) Notorious sinners. And they were, man, they were just frustrated that Jesus would hang out with these people. And what I love about the first couple of verses of Luke chapter 15 is that not only was it that they were frustrated that Jesus hung out with notorious sinners, but they were really ticked off that Jesus ate with them. I mean, Jesus, you would not only hang out with them, but now you would share a meal with them. That tells you something about the heart of God instantaneously of what God's heart is towards a prodigal or towards someone who's currently living their life right now and is lost. And so what the rest of the chapter of Luke chapter 15 does is it answers the question of why God would hang out with notorious sinners and why God would even choose to spend time to have a meal with them. That's what the rest of the chapter is all about, answering that one key question. And Jesus does it in three tight stories. Jesus taught them that the father's heart towards the prodigal looked something like this. There's four things. First, the father seeks for the prodigal. Remember last week? Last week, we were looking at Luke chapter 15, and and we looked at it, you know, from an overview perspective, lost being found. And we talked in there how the shepherd had lost one of his hundred sheep, and he left the one to go find the other 99. In fact, in Luke chapter 15, verse 4, it happens to say it this way. It says, won't he or won't the shepherd leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one that is lost until he finds it? Isn't that what he would do? Yes, that's what he would do. That's what Jesus said. Jesus said the heart of God is if he loses one, he would leave the others and go seek after the one to find them. Now, you, knew, you do need to know something that back in those days, many times the, the sheep were kept together as a communal group of sheep. So the whole village would put their sheep together and they would hire like three or four or five different shepherds. And those shepherds would work as a team as they took out the sheep. So some of you have thought to yourself, well, why is it that Jesus or God would leave the whole church to go find the one? What about us? Well, that's not the truth. The truth is one shepherd went after the one that was lost and the other shepherds stayed with the sheep to make sure that they were safe and kept and secured, and fed, and all those. So God searches after the sheep. Then we went on, and then we found out in Luke chapter 15, verse 8, that there was a woman who had lost a coin, and she searched after it as well. Wouldn't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it? Isn't that what she would do? 
Yes, that's what she would do. That was a day's wages. And she would search after it. And that woman's example is God's example of his heart towards prodigals who are lost. But that's not even where it ended. It went on just to talk about the the intensity of God searching after the prodigal. And in the third story, it mentions about the father as he's searching after the son. And it says this. And while he, the prodigal, was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. How do you see something that's a long ways off if you're not searching for it? See, when I lived in Alaska, I loved to hunt when I was in Alaska. If you come to my office, you'll see a bear hanging on my wall. Um, And so for all of you animal lovers, I apologize. But you do need to know that everything we shot, we ate. So um, that was one of our rules. So maybe that helps, you know, that will help you a little bit. So that bear became breakfast sausage, and wow, he was good with some pancakes. All right. So anyways, we would use these binoculars were my actual binoculars that I hunted with in Alaska. Uh, I paid a lot of good money for them back then. And, uh, you know, you could look out, you could, because Alaska was so big, you had to do what's called glassing for, you know, for animals as you, as you were out there. Not to mention, it was just a great way to see Alaska. So you'd be down in a valley and you could see miles and miles, one direction and the other direction and the other direction. And, you know, where are you going to go? You could just walk around aimlessly doing nothing. Well, with binoculars, you could look. You could look up in the balcony. Yes, sir, I can see you. Yeah, your shirt, by the way. I saw the thumbs up. Your shirt, your button's undone right there. Just on, yeah, right there, okay. Um, and you could, you could look up, you know, you could look out at people and you could see things. You could see things in a long, oh, I don't even want to look that way. You could see things from a long ways away. And it helped you to know where you were going. That is a picture of how the father was looking for the son. He was looking at him from a long distance away. He was peering down, if you will, the, the trail that the son had gone away from looking for him to come back. God's longing for prodigals to come home. So much that he's looking for them. So how does God, how does God seek for a prodigal? There's a few things that God does in seeking for a prodigal. Luke 19 verse 10 tells us this. It says, for the son of man came to seek and to save those who are lost. So Jesus is seeking for the prodigal. That's why God sent him. He sent Jesus to do his work so that prodigals are those who are, have wandered away. They can come back to him. Why is it so important? that prodigals could come back to him. We live in a community of prodigals, by the way. Here in South Central Nebraska, it's not like living in Omaha or it's not like living in Los Angeles or New York where you have a lot of people that are growing up these days that have never experienced what a relationship with God is. We, we live in a culture still where most of the people that you pass on the streets have some working knowledge of who God is. And maybe in their youth they were taken to church, but then as they got older they drifted away. We live in a community of prodigals. So why is it that we need to be a prodigal-friendly church? Because we live in a community of prodigals. Jesus came and gave his life on the cross so that our community of prodigals might have a way back to God and have relationship with God. That's what Jesus came to do. But there's also more about this story. It's found in John 16, verse 8. This is the other way that God is seeking for prodigals. And when he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he will convict the world of its sins and of God's righteousness, and of the coming judgment. So the Holy Spirit is also convicting, or He's getting into your business. You can put it in those types of terms. He's getting into your business. He's, he's showing you the places where your life is opposite of what God's rule and law is, and He's pulling you back to Himself. That's the heart of God. He's getting into your business, but He's convicting you. Conviction, remember this about conviction. Conviction pulls you to the heart of God. Condemnation or guilt, it pushes you away from God. Satan is out there in the minds of prodigals putting, con- putting condemnation, which is pushing them away from God, which is causing them to see God as mad and as interrogating. The Holy Spirit is putting conviction in their heart, which is causing them to see God's true heart, which is one who seeks after them. He longs for them. He's peering down the path that they walked away from, and he's longing for them to come back to him. The Holy Spirit convicts and says, come back to God. There's another piece that God uses, though, in seeking out the prodigal. It's found in 1 Corinthians 1, 21. Check this out. Since God, in his wisdom, saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom, he has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. Did you know that 
your wisdom in and of itself will never find God? Never. Human wisdom, it doesn't amount to the, to the right level to even discover who God is. So God says, because of that, I decided to use foolish preaching. And I love the fact he calls preaching foolish. It's just amazing to me. Foolish preaching. We think so, whoa, man, this is like the most powerful position in the whole church. And God goes, it's foolish preaching, my friends. It doesn't mean I'm a fool. Just so you know, let's make, let's make that clear. He didn't say fools preach. Notice that, all right? Notice that. That's important. In the original language, it doesn't even say that. Foolish preaching. What, what, does he, what does he mean? He's talking about his word. What do we preach from? Our own ideas or do we preach from God's word? We preach from God's word. Preaching is the interpretation of God's word in this congregation. And we're trying to preach the integrity of God's word. So what is God really saying? He's saying you could search all the books of science. You could stare into all the developments of all of creation all by itself. And although it does point to God, you could never really truly discover God outside of his word. His word brings truth. His word brings life. So what has God given us? He's given us the best-selling book on the planet called the Bible. It still is the best-selling book on the planet. It's written in all kinds of languages. It's continuing to be written in languages. It's, it has missionaries that have given their lives. It has followers of Christ that have given their lives for God's word. It's being spread around the planet like wildfire. God's word is seeking out those who are prodigals and are lost and bringing them into the kingdom. That's the heart of God. He's seeking after prodigals. Wow, that's the God we serve. But, he, but there's also some other things that Jesus taught us in Luke chapter 15 about the, about the Father's heart. He says the Father is filled with compassion. Filled with compassion. Look at uh, Luke chapter 15 um, in verse 20. Here's what it has to say. It says, filled with love and compassion, he, at this time it's the Father, he ran to his son, he embraced him, and he kissed him. He ran to him, embraced him, and kissed him. You see, it would be one thing to think that, as a father, to think that my son was dead. To think that my son had actually died someplace on some distant land, which is where the prodigal went. To get a report that said your son died. And then, all of a sudden one day, to be out mowing the grass and to see my son walking down the sidewalk. That would be an amazing moment. I would drop, I would drop everything. The lawnmower would still be going right where it is. It might be on self-propel, and it could just be mowing other people's lawns. Because at that moment, I would just run. I would run to my son. I would brace him. I would hug him, and I would kiss him. It's one thing to think that your son was dead, and then he comes home. It's a, no, it's a whole other thing to know that your son's living in a distant land and sinning, living a horrible, sinful life, wasting everything you gave him, then to see him and to run after him, embrace him, and kiss him. See, God, God, God knows where prodigals are at. That's what the story was all about. The father was God. God knows where you're at. God knows your business. God knows your lifestyle. And God still chooses to take off running when he sees a prodigal coming home and to run down the street and to embrace him and to kiss him. What a priceless picture of the expression of compassion. Notice what God didn't do, though. God didn't run up to the prodigal and third-degree him. He didn't run up and interrogate him. Notice that the father didn't run up to the prodigal and go, where's my money? Notice that the prodigal, you know, didn't receive the words of the father that said, you are never allowed back on this property. How dare you come back here? Notice also that the father wasn't stern with the son to somehow try to gain the upper hand again, like males so often do. Notice that the father emulated compassion. Godly compassion is way different than man's judgment. I have to confess that I had a moment this week where I unleashed man's judgment on another person. It, was, it happens to be a company that I called and I asked them, would you give me a bid on spraying my yard for weeds and fertilizing it? And they decided to take that, and instead of giving me a bid, they decided that was an open license to come and spray my yard and bill me. And that's exactly what they did. I'm not sure that they even sprayed it, but I got a bill in the mail. And I'm like, what in the world, $100? All I asked you to do was just give me a bid. So I am furious. My wife's like, 
We got a bit. We got a bill in the mail for a hundred dollars. Did you ask them to come and do that? I go, honey, I never asked anybody to come and do that. Does it need to be done? Absolutely. But I didn't ask anybody. And so, man, I'm fired. I'm like, honey, give me the name of those people. I'm going to call them up. How dare they come and charge me a hundred bucks for something I didn't even ask them to do. Right. And so she sends me the information. And then all of a sudden, like seconds later, I get this little text message from her. It's like the voice of the Holy Spirit at that moment. This is the godly wisdom my wife shared with me in two simple words. Be chill. Be chill. Now, I know what those words be chill means. That means, Jeff, don't judge them. Call them with compassion and work that out. And you know what I did? I stopped. I stopped for a moment. I was in my office. I stopped and I prayed and I said, God, I'm going to have to judge these people. Maybe something just got confused. And I called them up out of compassion. It's a true story. Called them up out of compassion. And lo and behold, the guy goes, you know what? I, I couldn't remember if you asked me for a bid or you asked me to do it. If, I, if you got a bill in the mail, just rip it up. Don't even worry about it. If you want our services, then please call me back and let me know. Um, and we'll get, it, we'll get it all worked out. I was like, well, that was a lot easier when you responded to people out of compassion than it was when you judged them before you ever talked to them. That's God. God doesn't judge us. God comes at us out of compassion. How does God, though, show this godly compassion towards a prodigal instead of judging them? How did he do it? First, and this is important, first, it was, it was given because it was deserved. The son was the one returning. See, it would have been, it would have been enabling for the father to go to the son and, and show compassion when the son wasn't willing to return. But because the son was returning, now compassion could be shown. In my phone call, because they were able to admit the fact that, oh man, we did get kind of confused. It was a lot easier to continue on with compassion, and I didn't have to get more stern and say, well, this is the way it went. It's a lot easier when it's deserved. And I'm telling you, God's waiting for prodigals to start coming home so that compassion can be shown to them. And that's exactly what he wants you and me to be doing as well, is to be looking for prodigals that are coming instead of judging them is to show compassion to them. But secondly, in 2 Corinthians 1, 3 and 4, this is an interesting scripture about how God shows compassion or he's filled with compassion. It says, all praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is our merciful. Merciful, that word right there means to be compassionate. So God is our merciful or our compassionate Father and the source of all comfort. Notice the words comfort. It shows up four times. He's the source of our comfort. He comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort others. When they, or the prodigals, when they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort that God has given us. Comfort. To encourage or to strengthen. It's a form, it's an action of showing compassion to those who are aware, who are troubled. Notice that it says the first one in verse 3, it says that God is our source of comfort. To be our source of comfort means that that is who he is. It has nothing to do with what he's done. It has everything to do with who he is. The greatest picture of God's comfort in this passage for our lives would be God's word. From the beginning to the end, God's word is there to encourage us and to strengthen us to live out our faith. That's what that word literally means when it says to comfort, that God is our source of comfort. Then in verse 4, things radically change. And he says, he comforts us in our troubles. And then he goes on, so that we can comfort others. He comforts us. That means there's action that's taken. It's beyond his word. The Holy Spirit's at work. Christ is at work in our lives. He's showing up. He's speaking to us. Intuitively, he's speaking to our spirit. He's helping us to get beyond our flesh and our emotions. And God's actively at work comforting us in moments as we go through troubled times. And then it turns around. It says at the last here, when they are troubled or when the prodigals are troubled, we will, you and me, we will be able to give them the same comfort that God has given us. Notice. The last word comfort isn't isn't the word of action again. That goes back to God, the source of comfort. So are you catching this? This is what God's wanting us to do. Filled with compassion, this is God's heart towards us. He's our source of comfort, and he's willing to activate that. 
He's doing that in our lives so that we experience, so that we can help others. We can activate compassion in the lives of others as well. And we now become, as Christ followers, we become a part of God's source of comfort. How do we do that? By having God's word buried deep into our hearts, by sharing the truth compassionately of God to those who find themselves in trouble. We become both the action and we become part of the source. That's how God wants to show or to express how he wants to fill compassion with the hearts of others. God's heart is filled with compassion. And he wants your heart and my heart to be the very same. I don't know about you, but I love scriptures like that. Jesus didn't stop there. He said the Father also, he responds quickly to repentance. This is interesting. This is a way that God's heart is towards the prodigal. He responds quickly to repentance. Do you notice in, in Luke chapter 15, the son is deciding to himself, wow, look at how I've got my life. It's all messed up. It's Man, it's really screwed up. Here I am working with the pigs. I'm, I'm wanting to eat the food that the pigs eat. I, I've got nothing. I've wasted everything. And he starts thinking to himself, I should go home and I should talk to my father. And when I get home and I talk to my father, I'm going to say a few things to him. Notice what the son is thinking in his mind that he's going to say to his father. He goes, I will go home to my father and I'll say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. And I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. Now that's important. Hang on to that. There's a few things that he says here, right? Uh, I'll go home and I'll say to my father, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and, and you. All right. And I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. So first off, we have a humbled expression. A humbled heart is what you have to have if you want true repentance. True repentance comes out of that humility that recognizes I violated God's law. But then he goes a step beyond that. He says, please take me on as a hired servant. I think last week I mentioned that a hired servant would be even lower than a slave. That a slave owned by a master would be someone that the the master had to take care of. He had to house him, clothe him, feed him. But a servant was one that was just hired for the day and that he could easily be let go the very next day. So what the son is saying is, I don't, I know I can't be a son. I, I don't think I can even be a slave. Maybe I can come on as a hired servant. That's a pretty lowly position as he's coming back to the father. Notice what happens, though, in verses 21 and 22, just a couple of verses later, when the actual conversation takes place. His son said to him, the father, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy to, of being called your son. Period. But his father said to his servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. This is interesting. I mean, many times you just read right over things like this. The son had it all spelled out. He's walking back from a distant land. He's played it over and over and over in his head. He knows exactly what he wants to say. This isn't like someone that has little cue cards. His is in his heart. He goes all the way through. I've sinned against heaven and earth. All right? I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And that's it. The father steps up and goes, I'll hear no more, basically. The father cuts him off right in midstream, and he never lets the son ask to be a servant. Why would he do that? Why didn't he let the son really own his mistake and really bury himself deep onto his knees and go, I'm not worthy. I'm not even worthy to be your son. Can I just be a servant? Then the father could lift him up and pull him back up to his feet. Why? Because all the father needed to see was true repentance. True repentance was already expressed in the humility of going, I've sinned against heaven and earth and against you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. That's all he needed. That expressed true repentance. For you and me, we want people to go beyond true repentance. We want them to feel guilty. We want them to feel ashamed. We want them to express all the filth that they've really done. We want them to identify with the pain that they've caused us. That's not what God does. God goes, all I'm interested in is true repentance, and he cuts him off. God was more interested in quickly getting the son back into the family than he was in the son throwing himself into the dirt, into the mud, and squirming around in it until the father showed mercy. God, that's the heart of God. God wanted to leave zero, zero doubt in the mind of the prodigal that he loved him. God wanted the prodigal to know right where he stood. Have you ever worked for someone, had a relationship with someone where you didn't quite know where you stood with them? 
you didn't quite know. Are they happy for you? Are they sad? Are they mad at you? You know, do they believe in you? Do they trust you? Do they not trust you? Have you ever had someone in your life where you just couldn't read them? You didn't know really where they stood? Isn't that an awkward feeling? God doesn't want that for prodigals. God doesn't want that for you and me. He especially doesn't want that for a prodigal. His heart to a prodigal is, I want you to know exactly what my heart is. In 2 Peter 3, 9, God makes it very clear for all of humanity that he wants everyone to repent. God's heart towards a prodigal, towards those that are lost, is that everyone would repent. So what does God look for to determine true repentance? What does he look for to determine that, man, in your heart is true repentance? Look at 2 Corinthians 7. It says this. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. Godly sorrow leaves no regret. So true repentance is beyond the sorrow of the consequences that our actions have caused. True repentance is not someone that's running to an altar and going, wow, oh man, my life is really screwed up. Look at all the messed up stuff I've done. That's just the consequences of their actions. That's not true repentance. True repentance is not uh, being sorry just because you got caught. Oh, man, now they found out about it. Okay, well, i got to get my life changed. That's not true repentance. That's just being sorry that you got caught. What is true repentance that God looks for? It's very simple. True repentance is sorrow for breaking God's law. That's it. The son returned, and he recognized, I've offended heaven, and I've offended you, Father, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Plain and simple. I realize I've broken God's law. Boom. You and me, we put too much weight on people. We put too much weight on prodigals. We want them to go beyond that. But that's God's standard. That's not my standard. That's God's standard. That's where God lives. God responds quickly to repentance. The last thing Jesus taught us was this, that the father rejoiced when the prodigal came home. Luke chapter 15, verse 23 and 24, says this about the prodigal. It says, we must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. <laughs> the party began. Notice some critical things about the father's heart towards the prodigal. The father, he was proud of the prodigal. Proud enough to throw a party. And to let everybody know he came home. How many times are we disgusted with the actions of the prodigal? But God throws a party. He's proud that the prodigal came home. So God starts the party. That's God's heart and celebrating and rejoicing when prodigals come home. And the father wasn't ashamed of the past of the prodigal. But he celebrated the present. God is more interested and God puts more credit in being found than God puts credit in being lost. God's more excited about those things that are found than he is that are lost. And God's never ashamed of what happened in your life when you were lost. If you're a prodigal here today, you need to know God's not ashamed of what happened in your past. God's only excited about the present. And do you see true repentance in your heart? So the father's heart towards the prodigal is really, truly, my friends, off the charts. It doesn't look anything like our hearts towards prodigals. We have to work and strive and you know, toil hard to try to have God's heart toward a prodigal. God's heart's off the charts. In fact, in Luke chapter 15, verse 7, this was even said about the Father's heart. Jesus said, in the same way, there is more joy in heaven over the one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. God truly loves the faithful. And if you're here today and you've never drifted away from God, praise God. That's the most powerful testimony anybody could ever have on this planet to be raised loving God and to keep loving God and have never drifted away. That's the most powerful testimony you will ever hear, my friends. God loves you. But you do need to understand something. God's heart is off the charts and it leaps when prodigals come home. It's a thousand times easier to come home to God than it is to come home to the criticism of man. A thousand times easier. And we, we're striving and diligently pursuing what it would look like to be a church where prodigals could walk in and experience God's heart and not the criticism and the judgment of man. That's what we're working hard to be. I'm wanting you as individuals to be out in our community and to know God's heart so that you can emulate God's heart and not the criticism of man. Prodigals don't want to come home to the criticism of man. They want to come home 
through the comfort, compassion, gentleness of God. But we, many times, have been the ones that are out there that are putting the labels on God that are man's labels and not God's and God's labels. God wants us to more emulate Him so that prodigals can see God and they can come home to God. We have a big part to play in becoming a church that's prodigal friendly. And I want to wrap up today in James chapter 5, verses 19 through 20. Here's a big part that we have to play. It says, My dear brothers and sisters, if someone among you wanders away from the truth and is brought back, you can be sure that whoever brings the sinner back will save that person from death and bring about the forgiveness of many sins. Hmm. If someone wanders away, how are you going to know if someone's wandered away so that you can bring them back if you're not seeking for them? How can you go after someone who's wandered away if your heart isn't filled with the same compassion that God's heart is filled with? How is that even possible? How can we go after them and bring them back if we don't understand what it means to have quick responses to repentance? If we want to bury people in the shame and the guilt of their actions? How can we truly notice when someone's wandered away and pursue them if we're not willing to actually throw a party when they're found? These are God's heart characters. God wants us to cherish these things and run with these. And in what way? And in what way is God challenging you today? Which of these four things is God saying to you, wow, I want you to seek after them more diligently than you have before. I want your heart to be filled with greater compassion than it's ever been before. You know, I, I, I want you to have the quick response to repentance where you've been more critical and more judgmental. Or maybe God's saying to you, you know, some prodigals have come home and you're yet to, you've yet to be willing to celebrate with them. Maybe God's going, I just want you to hug their neck, to celebrate with them and to let them know you're proud of who they are and forget about what they did in their past. Let their past be their past. And when we do that, the last portion of this passage is amazing. You'll bring about the forgiveness of many sins. When we are a prodigal-friendly church and we reach out to the community and we love the community and one prodigal comes home, guess what that one prodigal was surrounded by? A number of other prodigals. When you reach one prodigal, you end up reaching a clan of prodigals in one way or another. All we have to do is be a church that seeks after prodigals. Let's our heart be filled with compassion towards them. Be quick to... Be quick to respond to them and love them into the family when they repent. And let's figure out some way to celebrate with them like we did last week. We celebrated with baptism. Maybe it's celebrating with them at the altar in a prayer. Maybe it's celebrating by giving them a hug. Maybe it's celebrating with them by looking them in the eye and tell them, you know, all of the past is forgiven. I don't know what God's saying to you today. But I believe the Holy Spirit is trying to prepare our hearts to be a prodigal friendly church. And to do that, we had to start with what God's heart is towards the prodigal. Would you please stand with me today? Let's pray. Father, we know what your heart is towards the prodigal now. And Lord, many times it looks nothing like ours. Lord, if we're going to love you, honor you, and worship you with our lives then one of the things that we have to do is we have to figure out how our hearts can look more like your hearts, like your heart. And so, Lord, I just ask that in Jesus' name right now, that, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would move upon this congregation, and that, Lord, you would drill deep into our hearts, and you would show us the areas where we don't line up with you. You would teach us about those things. You would convict us, just like you convict the prodigal and you love them. You would show compassion to us where maybe we haven't shown compassion to others. You would see the humbled attitude of, of our hearts, repenting to you, going, God, how can I be an extension of you to my community? And Lord, you would celebrate even with us as we take one more step to look more like you. Thank you for that. Lord, somehow, some way, Lord, you want to use this church to be a prodigal-friendly church in our community. So Lord, we come in this moment of worship. We surrender our lives. We lay our lives down. We choose to worship you. And Lord, you and your spirit would transform us to look more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we worship today, let's come before God with hearts. and go, God, let my heart look more like your heart.
so that I can be a part of what you're doing, which is God's seeking diligently after the prodigal. Let's let God's heart look a little bit more like our heart today. Jesus. 
church? Yahweh, God, Father. Luke chapter 15. He's a seeking God. And He wants us to be a seeking people. First, we seek Him with all of our hearts. Secondly, we seek His mission and His plan, which is to seek and to save that which is lost. We are part of that. And to do that, we have to notice when when prodigals wander away and we go after them to bring them back. But we bring them back with compassion. Not with guilt and shame. With compassion. We bring them back by rallying around when we see repentance and we respond quickly. We bring them back into the family. We celebrate with them. Let's strive this week to be a prodigal-friendly church by emulating the heart of God. Prodigals are walking around deceived. They're deceived, thinking that God's mad or He's interrogating them, when really His heart of the Father seeking with compassion to find them and to celebrate. It's our mission. Part of our mission in life is to join with God's heart and to get out there and let the community know there's a God who loves them and cares about them right where they are. Right where they are. And let's love them enough not to leave them there, but to bring them back into the kingdom so that as they find Christ, many others will find Christ as well. So today, if you were like I was, and you would consider yourself to be a prodigal that you've drifted away from God and you're in need of being restored back in relationship with Him, you need to know, number one, you found a safe one to put your life in. His name is Yahweh. His name is Christ. Number two, you found a safe place to do that. And that's here. And as we dismiss today, these altars are open for hungry people that are just going, I want my heart to emulate and to look more like God's heart. And you come, seek Him. If you're here today and you are a prodigal and you've walked away, come to an altar like this. I want to meet with you and pray with you and just help you find what it means to have a relationship with God today. If you're here today and you have all kinds of other prayer needs, we have prayer partners that are in the back and they're located underneath these blue signs that say, Prayer Team. You can go to one of those folks. They'll pray with you today. They'll pray with you in Jesus' name. And we'll ask God to move on your needs and on your behalf today. So today, let's make this place a place of prayer. And if you need to leave, you're free to go. But let's make this auditorium a place where we continue to seek God. All right? God bless you. We'll see you next week as we continue the journey in a prodigal, friendly church. Let's seek God in here.